0: this is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. I'm delighted to be hosting another podcast today. I'm welcoming my guest Adnan Siddiqui from the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Buffalo. Dr. Siddiqui and his group have composed the manuscript entitled Complete Flow Control Using Transient Concurrent Rapid Ventricular Pacing or intravenous adenosine and afferent arterial balloon occlusion during transvenous embolization of of cerebral arteriovenous malformations, a case series. This manuscript is currently online and will be published in the April print edition of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. I'm delighted to welcome Adnan uh, to this podcast today to discuss this uh, manuscript. Welcome Adnan, good to see you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, At the outset, uh, let me read an advertisement from one of our sponsors, Rapid Medical. Rapid Medical develops responsive neurovascular devices for improved control of procedural success. Recently, the pivotal TIGER trial showed superior good clinical outcomes and reperfusion for the TIGER Trever thrombectomy device compared to previous landmark trials. Tiger Retriever gives interventionalists greater control over clot removal, allowing them to see the device and tailor the radial force during retrieval. With this real time responsiveness, the pivotal trial demonstrated the lowest rate of distal emboli and 24 minute median procedure time. Email info at rapid-medical.com or contact your local Rapid Medical representative to learn more about this new class of adjustable thrombectomy devices. So Adnan, great to have you here and and thanks for not only this manuscript but for the many contributions that your group has made to the JNIS over the years. I was uh, intrigued by this manuscript, intrigued uh, as well by the the technical nuances of this this complex uh, technique. Um, clearly uh, you have an excellent and experienced team. I wanted to start at the outset uh, for giving you uh, a little bit of time to talk about your team members and their roles, your room setup for transvenous uh, embolization of arteriovenous malformations, and basically to discuss a little bit about the, the dynamics of the, of the setup and the room during these uh, complicated procedures.
1: Well, thanks, Felipe, for the opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm happy you picked on this particular publication uh, because it's near and dear to my heart because uh, it did t- take a little bit of time to evolve into what it has now become and what I was able to share in this journal. And maybe some of those evolutionary things we might touch upon later uh, brought the procedure to where it is right now, but you're absolutely right it is fairly complicated and requires significant expertise. So the room is set up as traditional endovascular procedures would be, Um, we have anesthesia available. You might be aware that many times we in Buffalo tend to use conscious sedation for lots of procedures, particularly when we're doing purely trans arterial embolization for AVMs, we will do many of these awake so we can do a WADA type test. This is done under general anesthesia. This is done under burst suppression because we are going to make the brain ischemic for a period of time. So uh, we have neuromonitoring to confirm uh, burst suppression. So we have anesthesia, we have arterial lines, so they can manage the arterial pressures very carefully rather than just slaving off the guide sheath. And then typically we are doing motor uh, somatosensory and continuous EEG monitoring. Uh, Motor is not continuous but it allows for us to confirm that we are indeed in birth suppression. Then we have an interventional cardiologist who places the the pacemaker leads uh, and then is standing by to turn the pacemaker on and off. And it's their responsibility to manage time in terms of how long that pacemaking is going off, because for that duration, the heart is ischemic as well. And so they're the ones who really determine the time and typically the alicots of time rapidly decline once we have that first gusto of onyx into that vein and then i like to have two interventional neurosurgeons in our case but neuroradiologists maybe in others one is managing the onyx and the other one is managing the the balloons which are there in the arteries to arrest flow as well as initially creating that venous plug with coils and glue. So, and then we typically have fellows who are on the table and around the table, keeping eyes on what's going on and nurses and techs, which would be standard for any procedure.
0: Okay, Um, just to to briefly summarize, Adnan, uh, you attempted transvenous embolization in 12 patients. You abandoned it in two, and then were able to perform complete embolization uh, in 10 patients. Uh, you briefly touched on the uh, the anesthesiologist uh, and the cardiologist uh, uh, as members of your team. Can you discuss your timing of the rapid ventricular pacing? How did you arrive at the time interval intervals? And um, also, if you can describe in a bit more detail this concept of bulk flow, you mentioned this in uh, in your introduction and in in the methods. Uh, section. What exactly does this mean? And, and what, uh, what assurances does it provide during the, uh, during the embolization procedure itself?
1: Right. While it is relatively uncommon for us to use venous pacing, uh, the cardiologists routinely use venous pacing during structural heart procedures, particularly during placement of the TAVR valve. So they have a very good idea as to what the tolerance is for myocardial ischemia in terms of time. And they typically believe that anything longer than 75 seconds really starts to become dangerous. And so I ideally try to get these times to somewhere between 30 to 45 seconds. So that way I'm staying, you know, under the 50% threshold, what might be a dangerous complication. The longest period of time being the very first time you start the process. So that tends to take the longest. Now, in terms of a bulk flow, what I mean by that is that compared to, say, adenosine, which creates cardiac arrest, with pacemaking, there is still continued enterograde flow out of the heart it is just at a very low pressure. So we did this, we actually have, you know, what we do before we um, do the procedure is that we test for whether we have good cardiac myocardial capture from the pacemaker leads. And then we figured out how much the blood pressure is going to drop when you turn the pacemaking on. So for a younger person, you might have to pace them at 220 beats for their pressure to drop. But an older person, 180 might be enough. So, you know, it, you have to titrate it to the patient. And typically, when you turn the peacemaking off, the systolic pressures do- drop down into maybe 20 to 25 millimeters of mercury, but not zero. With adenosine, it goes to zero. So, there's that fundamental difference that you still have bulk flow, bulk enterograde flow, which is still going into the vessels. Hence, the need for the balloon for
0: adjunctive rest of intra AVM flow. And specifically, Adnan, how did, how, did you, um, how did you arrive at the time intervals though? Yeah. Uh, it seems like they got shorter as the
1: procedure progressed. The last thing I want to do is, besides creating a neurologic complication, give somebody a myocardial infarction. And so I use the guidelines the cardiologists use, and I ask them, what are they comfortable with? They're very comfortable in a healthy heart for 45 seconds. They really get nervous at 60. They don't want to ever go beyond 75 seconds. So that is how I try to keep it between 30 to 45 seconds typically, except the very first time when you do it, you might go a little bit longer just to create the construct of reverse
0: flow. Okay. Um Uh, Adnan, can you comment on why you chose adenosine in that single case rather than than RVP? And also, just to tag on to that, um, is there a subgroup of these patients that you're getting evaluated by cardiology preoperatively, or are you getting all of them evaluated preoperatively? Or or, tell me me a little bit about uh, your screening process as well. Uh, The answer to the first one is really out of
1: ignorance, uh, because we knew that Adenosine has been used forever in neurosurgical, neurovascular procedures, uh, usually in the cases of disaster to stop flow so you can uh, um, you visualize bleeding anatomy. The problem, though, with adenosine, which my cardiology colleagues here at the Gates Vascular Institute educated me, is that frequently it can lead to cardiac heart block. And its pharmaco- pharmaceutical properties are quite... Uh, irregular. So you don't get the same dose response curve, even in the same patient. Um, And so the duration of uh, ischemia can be quite varied. Sometimes it could be much longer than what you need. Other times it would be too short for it to be useful. So what they recommended was, why not go for venous pacing? So you can actually completely control, turn on, turn off on a button. And so that's why we switched. So the very first case we did was adenosine. And then my cardiology colleagues that I was bragging in front of said, hey, this is what we did. And then they told me I was stupid and that's not what I should do. And I should switch to pacemaking. And so ever since then, I switched to pacemaking. As far as workup is concerned, uh, every single patient gets a formal cardiology evaluation because the last thing you want to do is create... A myocardial ischemia in a person who is already on the threshold of ischemia. So, so, you need to be in good cardiac health for you to go through this procedure.
0: Great, that makes uh, that makes complete sense. I'd, I'd like to to delve into some of the technical considerations in these cases. Uh, you, you did touch on the on the fact why you you needed to use a balloon in in relation to the bulk flow. Um, can you discuss why uh, you felt you needed to to pressure cook, so to speak, the uh, the onyx delivery catheter, and also how frequently are you doing arterial control runs? Um, are these maneuvers that are based on your experience prior to the development of the technique or or how did you how did you establish some of these technical considerations?
1: So um, I have to say that I've learned a lot from two individuals. Um, Charbel Munayer and Rene Chapeau. Um, these guys are really the masters uh, who are pushing the boundaries. I'm following in their steads, and because I am uh, much easily spooked, I have these additional adjuncts of pacing and balloon, which are there for me to contend with my concerns with the transvenous procedure. As far as by pressure cook, it's again, that same concept of bulk flow. So even when you have low pressure, there's still bulk flow. Even when you have arterial balloon arresting, there's still collateral flow. So if you don't pressure cook, the onyx finds it easier to continue to descend down the venous system than go retrograde into the nidus. And so you really need to put a stop to that as aggressively as possible. So for instance, in that hybrid case, the best maneuver was to put a clip on the vein so you knew that you had complete arrest and then it was a lot easier. And so what I'm trying to do endovascularly is to put that clip on the vein. And the best way to do that in my estimation is a decent number of coils followed by NVCA. Many times that is not possible because the vein's just not big enough, access is too difficult, and then you don't do that. But when you don't, you do have to deal with a lot more Venous obstruction from the onyx, then uh, otherwise would be needed if you had a good reverse
0: pressure cooker situation. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your patient screening and and some of the other uh, potential adjuvant uh, therapies. Um, uh, let me ask you, did did you ever consider surgical resection after what you perceived was uh, a transvenous symbolic cure? And the reason I'm asking you this is because the patient um, that suffered an ICH after incomplete transvenous embolization in your series, um, it didn't seem like you perceived at the time that there was incomplete embolization. It was after the procedure, it sounds like that you went back and kind of scoured the images and realized that that, there was still, uh, that they were still filling. And, and that, that potentially is what caused the intracerebral hemorrhage. Do you ever just opt out in these patients where you're, you're not sure if you're completely done uh, to have them resected surgically? But that also
1: exposes the underbelly of this procedure. And the underbelly of the procedure is that once you have obstructed venous outflow, you really don't visualize the nidus very well. And so then the biggest issue becomes, what point do you stop? And so uh, when you're doing angiography in these cases, you might be doing a carotid injection on the left, but there might be contributions from the PCA and the contralateral carotid that you don't visualize. So there's never a complete assessment of an AVM. And so at some point, You start matching the cast of the onyx with the preoperative image of the AVM and in your mind start looking at, okay, do I have everything covered or not? Because there's no angiographic ability to visualize the AVM, that's where stopping becomes this real gestalt. And I believe that that complication was related to the fact that I did not appreciate there may still be delayed filling uh, of some part of the nidus, which is what ruptured. Also, that was a frontal lesion that could have been treated 25 other ways. So that's why I really feel in my practice restricting this to cases where surgery and radiosurgery might be challenging and the venous anatomy is perfectly conducive to it. So the cases where I balked Uh, was because the venous pedicles were multiple or were relatively short. So that's another thing that I feel makes this a higher risk procedure when you don't have enough vein to work with or the multiple venous outflows. So I, I feel that it's a little bit of an experiential thing to appreciate a nidus when you don't see it.
0: Yeah, it can be challenging, um, obviously, and, and certainly the more onyx you get, the more complex the picture is, and, and the more difficult it is to discern. Uh, Adnan, you, you briefly alluded to my next question, and that basically is that the overall uh, average Spetzler-Martin grade of the AVMs that you treated was three. Um, can you explain why you didn't select stereotactic radiosurgery for these patients? So the biggest
1: reason for the majority, except for that frontal lesion, was that these were thalamic midbrain pontine. And I routinely, in fact, I believe you might be reviewing another publication of ours looking at embolization and gamma knife for uh, over 150 patients. Um, We routinely use gamma knife for but I'm reluctant to give 18 to 20 gray to critical structures like the brainstem. And so most of my cases were posterior fossa involving brainstem, where I really was reluctant to deliver radiosurgery. Um, And that's where I believe this technique has a sweet spot. So I believe the complications are much more tenable when the alternatives, either microsurgical or radiosurgical, are are significant risk as well.
0: Yeah, certainly uh, uh, that brings up a great point, and that is, Really, that stereotactic radiosurgery, even though it's stereotactic, is not benign, and the effects can be profound and delayed. Uh, We've seen that um, at our institution as well. Adnan, I'm going to kind of wrap things up, but I have to ask you this question. Um, Your rate of ICH as a result of transvenous embolization was 2 out of 10 patients, 20%. Um this is uh, you'd have to say this is higher than the reported rates of symptomatic ICH after transarterial embolization. Um while this uh, this small report your report demonstrates the feasibility of this technique do you really believe it is safe based on this 20% ICH rate?
1: Great. Uh, question again. So let's uh, make this a little bit more nuanced. Do I believe transvenous embolization should be strategy number one for arterial venous malformations? No. Um, I believe uh, this hemorrhage rate with a hundred percent cure rate is definitely worth considering for AVMs that have high risk options using standard methodologies, including uh, microsurgical resection or radiosurgery. So I really believe that is the sweet spot for this technology. I think that's where they should reside till we have better strategies to visualize the AVM during the procedure, better strategies to deal with intraoperative hemorrhagic complications, etc. Also, please note uh, that both hemorrhages did not result in any long-term disability given the fact that we were able to flow control, we were able to do all the things that we did. So we were able to address the complications the patient did, both patients ended up doing very well. So there was no mortality with this technique with a very high cure rate. So I believe this is a feasibility study, but I believe its sweet spot is probably pretty small.
0: So just to conclude, give us us your ideal patient for for, uh, a transvenous embolization regarding age, AVM grade, location. If you had to treat a patient, what would be the ideal scenario under which you're treating?
1: The ideal scenario is a patient who has an AVM uh, in a high-risk territory for radiosurgery. And that automatically means it's it's a high risk microsurgical case. These are typically brainstem thalamic type lesions that have singular venous outflow and very limited arterial inflow from anything that's easily embolizable. So it's important. We didn't talk about this throughout, but it is important to understand that this is an adjunct to arterial embolizations. So you always start off by reducing all the reasonable arterial inflow points that you can using standard transarterial techniques. Transvenous procedure is the last procedure that you do following a succession of transarterial procedures. And so the ideal AVM is small. This is not a procedure for large AVMs, definitely not grade fours or fives. Um, I certainly have never attempted one. I know Renee and uh, Charbel are doing venous staging, So they're going after individual pedicles, but particular parts of the nidus. Um, I'm concerned that uh, at least I don't have the expertise to be able to go for that. I still restrict myself to relatively small ones. uh, And that's what's been shared in the paper. Um, I have tried a larger one, but that ended up being a complication recently. And so I'm really nervous about volume staging on on the venous side.
0: Well, thank you, Adnan. Um, this is a this is a fascinating paper, a technically nuanced uh, manuscript that I think speaks volumes about uh, the quality of your team and the excellent work that you guys put together on a routine uh, basis. Uh, I loved your point that this is not an upfront strategy. This really is uh, at the at the bottom of the list of, of endeavors that you should undertake to treat these complex lesions and. And you guys are obviously experts uh, at doing that. So I congratulate you and thank you for taking part in this uh, podcast. Dr. Siddiqui's paper again, complete flow control using transient concurrent rapid ventricular pacing or intravenous adenosine and afferent arterial balloon occlusion during transvenous embolization of cerebral arterial venous malformations. A case series is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in the April print edition. Thank you, Adnan, great to see you, my friend, uh, and congratulations. Thank you very much, Philippe, really appreciate it. You're welcome.